You know, I was beginning to think this week, and there's been a lot of things that's been heavy on my mind. I don't know about you, but do you, do you ever look around and, and begin to, th- there's just things in society that weighs on you, and, you just, and maybe you have a little bit of a burden for it. And, and I was thinking, if ever there was a time in this nation that we need healing, we need it today. Today would be the time. And we look around us, there's a great divide that we, that we see. And it seems that day by day and moment by moment, it gets wider and wider and wider. And laws are passed that move us further and further away from God's divine standard. And the sad thing is, so many of us call it progress. In case you haven't figured out already, this word that the Lord has given me, it's in me. You know, I've even seen people that claim to be believers say, well, there's my faith and then there is what my conscience tells me is best for this nation. And when you see comments and you hear things like that, there is a problem. Because God's law is timeless. His standards do not change with time. Yes, we must love people. We must embrace people that have circumstances and things in their lives. And and we must love on them. They must feel loved. They must feel cared for. But sometimes loving somebody means that we lovingly warn them of the consequences of the direction they're headed. This idea that somehow we must condone. You know what? If, if, we, if there's somebody that we know that is, that is headed for a cliff, is it all right to stand there and pat on the back? You know, you, we love you. God loves you. It's all going to be You know, we should be getting in the way and say, whatever you do, don't go this way. And we see a whole many, many people in this nation and around us that we all know, that we know they're headed in the wrong direction. We know they have the wrong standards and the wrong things. And just because society says something is okay, just because a law is passed does not mean it supersedes God's law. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. We have a whole society that is casting off restraint. Think about this, all the things that we see that are just paraded out in the open these days that 10 years ago we would have thought we'd never be here. But it goes on to say, but happy is he who keeps the law. See, the truth is, what God called sin is still sin, and that sin will still send the unrepentant to hell. That's the dirty little secret that nobody wants to talk about. And we often tell ourselves that for our land to be healed, America has to repent and it has to turn from its wicked ways. But too often, we attempt to cure a spiritual problem with a political strategy. This election is, no matter what happens, this election is not going to set the nation straight. I believe that much, and listen to me, I believe that much of what we're seeing in 2020 is God trying to get the attention of his people. I believe we're going to continue to see increasing troubles despite the outcome of the elections, whichever way it goes. We must pray for this nation. We are supposed to be the light of the world. We are supposed to be the salt of the earth. Yet somehow in so many ways we've lost our saltiness. 
And in the name of political correctness and tolerance and diversity, we've backed away from the truth. We have become deluded by our culture and ineffective in upholding the standard we're supposed to uphold. Here's the good news. I believe in divine healing, and this nation needs some divine healing. So where's this come from today? Well, Tuesday night, I went to bed, tired from a pretty full day, laid down, went right to sleep. In the wee hours of Wednesday morning, I was suddenly woke up. I mean, just from dead asleep to bam. And I kept hearing over and over in my head, if my people who are called by my name. You know, is it possible to heal our land? It is. And as, he, as that began to unfold in my mind, I, 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 I so, have you ever been there? I so wanted to just go back to sleep. I so wanted to turn from this way to this way and kind of push that. I will deal with that in the morning. But it wouldn't go away. I literally had to get up, put on my robe, go into my study and sit down and begin to type this message out. And I spent over an hour sitting there. And once I got it all out, then I could go back to bed. So is it possible to heal our land? Well, here's what the Lord reminded me. He reminded me who this message was for. It was for His people. They were called by His name. In other words, He was saying it was God's people that must humble themselves. It's God's people who must pray. It's God's people who must seek His face. It's God's people who who must turn from their wicked ways. Then He follows that up with, Then, God says, I will forgive their sins and heal their land. You know what hit me? He wasn't speaking to the heathens of the nation. He was speaking to his people who were called by his name. So the question is, how bad will it have to get before God's people will stop putting anything and everything in front of seeking God? How high does he have to ramp up the bar? How bad does it have to get before his people will turn the TV off and humble themselves and pray? How bad will it have to get before God's people will grasp that there is a power in gathering together to pray? So many times we talk about, hey, let's gather together for prayer. Well, I can pray at home, but the question is, are you? There is something about when we show a fortitude to gather together and begin to pray and begin to intercede. And so as as I begin to think of all these things, too many times we want a political answer to a spiritual problem. But I think the reason we want the political answer, because if we get the political answer, things can go back to normal to the way that they were before everything began to shift. And we can just enjoy doing our lives the way we've done it for ages. And I believe that God is saying enough with that. 
So as I begin to think about that, I turn to 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is where that familiar passage is found. But then I back up and I begin to read, and I saw something here that I never really, I just never put two and two together. So 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, right before that famous passage is said, if you look at the stage and the sitting of everything that is going on, what you have is you have that Solomon is there, and he is finally fulfilled. He has done what God has set aside for him to do. The temple has been built. The temple has been dedicated. They've done all the things according to how it was supposed to be done. All the sacrifices were made. They had everything set up, and God himself sent fire to to consume the sacrifice. And it literally says the priests could no longer go in and do their duties because the presence of God was so strong. Isn't it time we get back to the presence of God being so strong that we can't have church as normal? And I want you to listen to what it says. So all that happens, I mean, you read the whole dialogue of what's happened. I mean, they did multiple days of sacrifices. They did all the things. God had sent the, the fire for the sacrifice and just everything was happening. I mean, I'm sure when that week was over and, and, and Solomon got back to his place, I'm sure he got back to his palace and he's like, man, what a great week. I bet he was riding a spiritual high. Everything came together. It's just like it's supposed to be. But it's interesting what he says right here in verse 12. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Ooh, that's good so far, right? Let's look at what he says next. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Now, wait a minute. They're supposed to be riding this spiritual high. And notice he doesn't say, if I do these things. He says, when I do these things. So what he's saying is, there's going to be time that you guys are going to get off the mark, and I'm going to have to do some things pretty drastic to get your attention and get you to turn back to me. He's basically saying, there will be times. But the good news is, following this, he gives us the incredible recipe of how we should respond as his people called by his name because right after that after he says there will be times when I do this when I do that when I send pestilence your way he says if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You know what? Our land is not healed because it hasn't gotten bad enough to get God's people back to the altars. It's not gotten bad enough for us to humble ourselves. It's not gotten bad enough for us to get on our faces and pray. It's not gotten bad enough to seek his face. It's not gotten bad enough for us to actually turn from our wicked ways. If we as believers aren't moved enough by this condition of our nation to humble ourselves and to pray and to seek his face and to do these things, then, then how much more does God have to wrap things up to get us there? 
As a Christian, as one who is called by his name, we should ask ourselves this question. How bad will it have to get before I am moved out of my complacency to the place of earnestly seeking God? Because if you look at this passage of what he was speaking to a nation, that's where we're at. So what did he say? Well, first of all, he talks to those that are called by his name. Guess what? We're supposed to be those that bear his name. Probably every one of us here, if you ask, are you a Christian? Oh, absolutely. Well, guess what? We're wearing his name when we say, I am a Christian. The first word in that is Christ. We're supposed to be his representatives. First Peter 2, 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're good at celebrating that. I'm a chosen people. I'm a royal priesthood. Man, we love claiming all the promises and all those things. And we celebrate his name. And we celebrate being a part of a holy nation. But too often, we still treat holiness like it's a dirty word. Now, I'm not talking about all the outward stuff. Yes, there's been times that the church has put all these outward things on us that that somehow is a standard of holiness. Standard of holiness is in your heart. Standards of, of holiness is who you are and how you conduct yourselves. Far too often, we want a common law relationship with the benefits of living with Jesus, but not a covenant relationship of being a spotless bride. That's where we're at as a nation. That's where we're at as his people who are called by his name. But I love that he says, but when you get there, and when I send that pestilence, because I've got to get your attention, I love that he says, here's the four things you need to do. Boy, to me, if, any, if there's any message we need to hear, we need to respond with these four things. Number one, he says, if they will humble themselves. See, we need to reach a place that we admit reality. We know that sometimes you've got to stop and you have to step back and you have to assess and you have to admit really where you are and really how well you're doing. And we must recognize our failures. We must call them what they are. We must show true sorrow for our sin in place of excuses. How many know that excuse me and forgive me are two different things? We're great at coming up with our excuses. Well, I, you know, I know, but, you know, I, I get, God, you owe me some special circumstance here, right? We make our excuses. That's completely different than humbling ourselves and saying, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned. We must repent. We must renew our commitment to follow the Lord's law and his plans and his purposes. We must humble ourselves, and it means to recognize our level of spiritual poverty. Getting on our face before him. 
Man, we're so great at asking for our needs, but when's the last time you truly got on your face before God and just said, Lord, I fall so far short. Lord, I'm in desperate need of you. Lord, come and help me. Lord, Lord, and we beg for forgiveness of the areas that we fall short, and we don't make excuses for them. We own up to what they are. We even make excuses for the blatant defiance of God's law in our society. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We walk in the pride of our excuses We fall short, but there is something about when we humble ourselves and we confess the way that we fall short and we say, Lord, come and help me to repent and to turn from those things that all of a sudden he begins to move in our lives. Then there's the second and third thing he tells us that we need to do when we find ourselves, when we find ourselves standing today. He says, pray and seek my face. Oh, we're great with FaceTime on our phones. When's the last time we did some FaceTime with God? On a regular basis. Did you ever pay attention to how much time Jesus spent praying and seeking the will of his Father? I'm thinking if he needed it, I'm going to stop there. As his people, we must return to desperately calling on him. For mercy, we must come. completely trust and depend on him and answer his cry he said he would but we sometimes we don't believe his promise because let me say this if we truly believed his promise here wouldn't we be on our face before god if we truly believed his promise wouldn't we seek his face would we wouldn't we pray to him wouldn't we do what we need to do would we turn from the things that hold us back from being what we should be what does it say? It says to pray. We must come before him from a faithful heart. And, and, and we must continue to call out until we get the answers. How many know that, that, that Jesus himself talked about, he told the parable of the persistent widow. It's okay to keep asking and keep asking and keep asking and keep going and keep going. But our asking should be sometimes a little less about the things that we want him to do and more about, Lord, help me to get lined up with your will like I need to be lined up with your will. We need to seek his face. We must turn towards God and seek his presence with a passion. Some of you... Or some of us spend more time praying when we lose our keys than we do any other time all week. <laughs> God, I got to get out of here. You know I'm running late. Show me where I lost those keys. Hmm. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. <laughs> Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If we truly believe that, why aren't we seeking? Why aren't we knocking? See, because true seeking takes time. 
When was the last time you had something that was so heavy on your heart that you truly spent time seeking and knocking and asking? What if we took the time we spent arguing with people on social media and actually started praying about circumstances? Number four, turn from their wicked ways. Not the world around us, you turn. Because what did he say? He said, if my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways. I don't know about you, but I don't think of myself as too wicked. I'm, I'm pretty good at, we can always find somebody else that's a little below where we're at and say, oh, they're wicked. That doesn't mean that we don't have some elements of wickedness in us that we need to lay before the altar. We need to get those things under control and put down and set aside and, and, and turn from those things and begin to turn back to him. You know, we, we're so quick to rip areas, other people around us. We look around us and we see the wickedness that is so pervasive all throughout in our society. And we see that stuff everywhere and we, we condemn that. But he doesn't say to start with them. He says to start with us. So quick, Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. How many know that we need those times of refreshing? The church needs those times of refreshing. As God's people, we must genuinely repent. We must turn back. We must change our ways. We must not go back to the same old things again and again. And anytime, you know, anytime something takes priority over God, we allow things that we wouldn't consider idols, but we allow them to become idols in our lives because if that shows up, then God gets the second chair or the third chair or the fourth chair. When was the last time you said, Lord... Show me if there be any wickedness in me. I mean, no, that's not on the top of our prayer list. See, once we return to determination to maintain our commitment to God, even in times of of national spiritual rebellion and wickedness, He can send his revival to his people, which will naturally then begin to spill out from his people to those around us, and a nation will begin to be changed. Think about this. Widespread spiritual revival always starts among his faithful people who are called by his name. You've seen the little signs that people throw out a point and they say, You know, prove me wrong, I'll wait. Show me a time that revival started, that it didn't start with his people who humbled themselves and prayed and turned from their wicked ways. It always starts with his people.
And we're praying, we're asking God to do things to the world around us. And we see everywhere, and Lord, do something about, do something about that. And he's just simply saying, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves. But here's the part. We meet those four conditions. I love what it says. Then, do one, two, three, four, then I will hear. Basically, what he's saying is, you do your part, then I'll do mine. Pretty simple. You know, I am, unfortunately, I'm serious. I'm in all seriousness here. I am convinced that God is determined to bring his people and his church back into alignment with his will. And I expect him to keep ramping things up and things continuing to escalate until finally we get the point and we begin to do what he's asking us to do. And once we've met those four conditions, I completely expect we will see revival. Now, does that mean that everything will suddenly line up and be right? No, I... Absolutely expect there'll be some pushback. Absolutely expect there'll be a, a, a counterattack. The, the, we're still going to face some things in this world, but I'd rather be facing those things with him on, on my side because I, all throughout history, what do we see again and again? When, when the evil rises up, God does something among his people to be a counterbalance, and he begins, and people in the nation around him are brought to the point that they have to make a choice. And I expect if we will do our part and we will humble ourselves and we will get on our face and we will seek him and we will turn back to him, that things may get worse around us. But I fully believe, I absolutely convinced that there's a revival on the way. But how much does he have to ramp things up before, we, before he gets our attention and we begin to respond? I love God's three-part response. Because revival always starts when he says, you know what? I'm no longer angry with my people. And all of a sudden, he, our, our prayers carry a little more weight. You ever had one of those seasons that it just seems like you pray something? I mean, God just responds and he's answering prayers left and right. And you're just like, woo, this is cool. I believe that we get back on our face and we begin to do these things. I believe all of a sudden the first thing we'll see, we'll begin to see how much more effective our prayer life is. Because the first evidence of real revival is when God begins to answer prayers and he responds with compassion towards his followers and he begins to move. Then God will, what gets, then guess what happens? It begins to spill out and God begins to forgive people and he begins to cleanse people. And as we're forgiven and we're cleansed and he's answering, all of a sudden people on the outside on the fringe that know us begin to notice and we see some of the people out there begin to give their lives to Christ and, and the atmosphere is set where people are drawn and then God will pour out his Holy Spirit in order to bring a spiritual awakening to us his church and this nation and salvations begin to take place and he will refresh our land again by it says i love it by pouring out the rain and we may not be in a drought drought but we've been in a spiritual drought for a while i love when on occasion the worship team goes into that little chorus let it rain We need a good, saturating reign of his spirit. Because what does he say? As I bring this to a close, if I can get our worship team to come back. He says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain. 
or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. See, as a Christian, as one who is called by his name, we need to ask ourselves, how bad will it have to get before I'm moved out of my complacency to earnestly begin to seek God? Because what does it say? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Shouldn't that be the heart cry of all of us? We've got our assignment. To humble ourselves. To pray. To seek his face. And to turn from our wicked ways. When was the last time you asked, Lord, show me the things that are still remaining that I need to deal with? I'll be honest. I live a pretty stand-up life. I really do. But I haven't arrived. Just this week. You know, sometimes you can go along, you think you're pretty good. And the Holy Spirit says, well, there's this one thing over here I want you to work on. This week, he showed me something in my life and said, this is the next thing you need to take care of. I didn't think it was that bad. And I guess in the grand scheme of things, by human standards, it wasn't. But it's the next thing he's calling me to do. So all I can say is, okay. When's the last time you asked him? But what's that next thing I need to work on? What's the thing that I've become so accustomed to that I don't even see it as wicked anymore? you it is we just need to be a people that humbles ourselves and pray Kristen mentioned and I realize there are people with different schedules but we've been opening the church up at 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings there's been a few of us that just before the worship team even gets here to get things tuned up and warmed up And we just spend a little time, about 30 minutes, just praying over the sanctuary. And I don't know if you've noticed, it's been evident to me that since we've been doing that, His presence is here during worship. It's, I mean, at times, it's it's tangibly thick. Boy, what if we all said, Lord, I see where things are at. I'm ready to do what I need to do. We may even here in the next couple of weeks start having the church open a couple of nights a week just for people to come by. Because we've got to get serious. We've got to get serious about getting back on our face before Him 
man, we get ourselves right. We get all of us praying and asking God to move. I mean, just think of this. You really think we do that? He's going to say, nah. I think what we're going to see is he's going to say, finally. Finally. I'm telling you guys, God's been doing something in me. You know, if you couldn't tell, he's been doing something in Kristen. I mean, it's, there's some things that are stirring and happening. Let's get on board, man. I want to ask them to go back into just a little bit of worship for us this morning. How many of you, I'm just going to ask, how many of you, this really spoke to something in your heart this morning and you realize that there's, that there's just some things that, that, that while we can tend to think we're pretty good people, that you realize, you know what, I've got to ramp this thing up. I've got to step forward a little bit. I've got to become more uh, convinced to step in and to be and to do and to walk in what he's called us to do. Because to me, this, there's nothing with what he shared in my heart that can be argued with. I mean, it's just laid out there, A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four. So the only question is, how are we going to respond? So I challenge you. We're purposely done a little bit earlier than normal. I'm going to ask them to lead us back into worship. And I challenge you to find a place up in the altar. I'm a pacer when I pray. You want to kneel at your chair, whatever, but I, I challenge you. Don't just walk away and say, ooh, that was a convicting message and then not do anything about it. Let's take a few moments and humble ourselves and pray. And don't let it just be a Sunday morning thing. Let it be something that you make a part of your life, that you set aside. We all have things that we can just sit aside for a little bit and say, Lord, I need you. We need to pray for ourselves that he will get us right and then from the outflow of that, all of a sudden, I believe he will pour out his spirit on this church. And, you know, his church is his mechanism for changing our nation. If we'll humble ourselves and seek him. Let's take a few moments to do that today.